Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for July 11th through 17th, 2022. This is covering 2 Kings chapters 17 through 25. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scriptures! Oh, you're looking great. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 57 minutes, 39 seconds. Oh, oh, oh. am I right to say that is the longest reading of the year? It is. As a matter of fact, it only gets shorter from here. So if you can make this one, you can make the rest of the year. Well, and what would it be if we broke it down daily? 8 minutes, 14 seconds. So good, we can do it. Now, we are going to cover 2 Kings chapters 14 through 25 as we left off with chapter 13 in our last lesson. So if you wanted to read 14 through 25, that would be 1 hour, 14 minutes, 52 seconds, or daily, 10 minutes, 41 seconds. Right. So you can do that. Absolutely. And here we've got time codes if you want to go chapter by chapter Again, if you want to just cover the Come Follow Me materials, just jump to those time codes. Otherwise, buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study. Also, please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening, you might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel. Yeah. Let's take a look at a summary of chapters 14 through 16. You'll remember we left off with the death of Elisha. The seminary manual gives us a great overview. It says, These chapters describe the reigns of various rulers of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. The kings of Israel reigned wickedly. Most of Judah's kings were personally righteous, but allowed their people to continue to worship idols. Eventually, a very wicked man named Ahaz became king of Judah. He not only worshipped idols, but sacrificed one of his sons to one of these idols. And he completely rejected the counsel of the prophet Isaiah. He sought an alliance with the kingdom of Assyria, giving the king of Assyria silver and gold from the temple in Jerusalem as a present. He also made unauthorized changes to temple ordinances. The kings of Israel were much like King Ahaz of Judah. So let's take a look at King Hoshea of Israel as an example. So this is in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 3. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. Oh, well, let's see how that works out for him. And we should point out that when it says, and gave him presents, that means he's paying him tribute. Right. Basically saying, please don't kill me. Here's money. (laughs) So let's see how that works out for him. In the next couple of verses, Hoshea offended the Assyrian king by sending messengers to seek help from Egypt and skipping his annual tribute, and so was put in prison. 
while his people were under siege from the Assyrians for three years. Let's take a look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. So this conquering of Israel and scattering them among the cities of Assyria is what we mean when we refer to the scattering of the ten tribes. It's beginning here. And this finally gives us a fairly concrete area in the timeline. This would be approximately 721 B.C. But why, after 200 years, did they finally lose the Lord's protection? Well, 2 Kings 17, the next few verses, talk about it. 9 through 12, they served idols. Verses 13 through 14, they rejected the prophets and would not listen to their message. That'd do it. And going further, let's take a look at verse 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Do you see anything modern in this verse, in verse 15? because it's going to be more specific as it goes on, but look at this and think of our world. What happens when people reject the statutes of God and his covenants? What happens to people today, including us, when they don't listen to the warnings that have been given, where they follow vanity? Do we see that today? Do we see that even in our own lives? They went after the heathen that were round about them. In other words, They wanted to be like the world when God told them to not be like the world, to be peculiar and different and unique and holy. So even though this is a long time ago, that there and them, there's a lot in that verse that relates to us here and now. Right. Going on in verse 16. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves. And made a grove, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire, and used divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Now the Institute Manual gives some clarity to that. It says, The statement that there was none left but the tribe of Judah only can be understood correctly if one realizes that at this time, Benjamin, Levi, and all other Israelites who had left the nation of Israel and joined Judah were included under the title of Judah. The ten tribes carried into captivity at this time were Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Ephraim, and Manasseh. The three remaining tribes were Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Some of the tribe of Levi were still with Israel, the ten tribes, however, and some of Ephraim, Manasseh, and other tribes were with Judah. So the division is not as clear as a superficial reading might indicate. Hmm. I would also add that it's important to remember that when we talk about titles like Israel or Judah, we're talking about I mean, sometimes it refers to tribes, but at other times, and more commonly in these chapters, we're referring to a political alliance. And so it's the kingdom of Judah. It doesn't really make a difference who's in there. 
certainly there's a lot of mixing up. And this idea that there are a lot of tribes mixed up is verified in our stories in the Book of Mormon. Right. And the Book of Mormon also has several examples of labeling large groups of following regardless of how many tribes are involved. For example, the Lamanites are the Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites, and the Nephites are the Nephites and Jacobites, and so on and so forth. That there is this higher level labeling of, well, these people, these are the Nephites, these people, these are the Lamanites. Same thing here. These people, these are the people of Israel, these are the people of Judah. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 17, after the Assyrians carried away the Israelites from the northern kingdom, the king of Assyria relocated people from other places in the Assyrian empire to the cities of Samaria, as it mentions in verse 26. Keep in mind that the title Samaria may be referring to all Israel. We've already seen a couple examples of references to a nation by the name of its capital city. Upon arriving to their new homeland, Many of these relocated people were attacked by lions sent by the God of Israel. The people didn't know much about the God of Israel, and they attempted to placate or pacify him by offering sacrifices to Jehovah. However, they did not stop worshiping or sacrificing to their own gods. Yeah, remember that they come from a world where God isn't their father who loves them and wants them to be holy They're from a world where if you want a God to stop doing terrible things to you, you need to offer sacrifices to that God. But, you know, they're not asking you to be exclusive. Well, and not only that, there are gods of various regions. You know, there's gods of this area or gods of that area. And so if you're in a particular other country, you've got to placate that country's God. Right. And to recognize that there's a God of the whole earth, that's something very specific to the people of Israel. Right. It's a unique concept for that time. It is. And it's something that they're going to have to really understand when Judah eventually gets moved out of their land. And that's a lesson that Ezekiel is going to try to teach them. But we'll get to that later. For now, the Institute Manual has this to say. Sometime after the ten tribes of Israel were taken into captivity, Assyria moved some of its own people into the area formerly occupied by the Israelites. When the new residents failed to prosper, the king of Assyria sent an Israelite priest to the area to instruct the people in the worship of Jehovah, though it was liberally mixed with the paganism of Assyria. Living as they did in Samaria and its environs, these new occupants of the land became known as Samaritans. Eventually, intermarriage of the Assyrian settlers with those stragglers who had survived the captivity, not all Israelites were removed, caused the Samaritans to claim Israelite covenant blessings. The Jews of later years refused to accept this claim because of the Samaritans' Gentile blood and pagan religious tendencies. This refusal led to the increasing hostility between the Jews and Samaritans that was evident in the time of Jesus. The Jews simply refused to associate with their Samaritan neighbors. Hmm. That's some great background. Yeah, I love that. The Institute Manual is awesome that way. Yes. So now let's go on to 2 Kings chapter 18. So after the destruction of Israel, what would happen to the kingdom of Judah? At this point, no one has been able to stand before the mighty empire of Assyria. Well, thank goodness Judah had King Hezekiah. Yeah. Starting in verse 3. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. 
He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. Well, wait a minute. Is this the same brass serpent we talked about earlier in the year when we studied in the book of Numbers? Why, yes. Yes, it is. Well, let's learn a little bit more about it. From the Institute Manual, it says, The brass serpent was preserved in Israel and in time became an object of adoration and was worshipped by the Israelites much as they worshipped idols. In his zeal to eradicate all forms of idolatry in Judah, King Hezekiah had the brazen serpent destroyed along with the idols. The word Nehushten comes from the Hebrew and means an object made of brass. The implication may be that Hezekiah was speaking contemptuously of the object being worshipped, saying it was merely a thing of brass and nothing more. Hmm, I love that. Going on in verse 5, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. You go, Hezekiah. He smote the Philistines even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. Now, to get a fuller picture of what will happen next, we have to use the books of Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and the book of Isaiah. Now, we could jump between them all, or we could use a really great resource that Church Education put out many years ago. This dates back to 1999. It's a script that you may have fun performing with your family and friends. It's my favorite way to cover this story, and we'll include a link to the PDF of it in the description. So let us please introduce a reader's theater of this great story of Hezekiah. And thanks ahead of time for humoring us. As recorded in the Old Testament, the warring nation of Assyria had at one time succeeded in placing its brutal military paw on much of the Middle East. By 724 BC, there were no independent states from Assyria to Egypt. The Kingdom of Israel had been conquered and carried captive to Assyria, and the Kingdom of Judah, along with many other nations, had been forced to pay a burdensome tribute. When Hezekiah king of Judah ascended the throne, he rebelled and refused to pay the intolerable tribute to the Assyrians. Enraged at this rebellion, Sennacherib, the powerful king of Assyria, swept into the kingdom of Judah in 701 BC, besieging and subduing all her fortified cities except Jerusalem. Soon all of Palestine lay at the feet of his ravaging hordes and his psychological warfare and vast army machine were at Jerusalem's very doorstep. In light of this inevitable assault, Hezekiah made preparations for the defense of Jerusalem. He strengthened the city walls, built a tunnel to bring water into the city, made darts and shields in abundance, and in all other ways readied the people for war. But even his ambitious industry and artful maneuvering did nothing to dissuade the mighty Assyrians' attack. 
King Hezekiah, having set captains of war over the people, gather them together in the street near the gate of the city to speak to them. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah king of Judah. For Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, abolishing pagan tyranny and false worship, destroying idolatry and re-enthroning the worship of Jehovah in the kingdom of Judah. When Sennacherib realized that Jerusalem would not yield, he sent Rabshakeh, a warrior servant, with a message for King Hezekiah. Brazenly standing before those who were upon the city wall, Rabshakeh delivered the message in the form of a taunting, blasphemous speech, demanding that Jerusalem surrender to the Assyrians. Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Whereon do ye trust that ye abide in the siege in Jerusalem? Doth not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Know ye not what I and my fathers have done unto all the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands any ways able to deliver their lands out of mine hand? Now, therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this matter. Neither yet believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of mine hand, and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your god deliver you out of mine hand? But the people held their peace, and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, saying, Answer him not. Sennacherib continued to rail on the Lord God of Israel, declaring that since the gods of other nations had not delivered their people out of his hands, neither would Hezekiah's God rescue his people from Sennacherib's powerful army. For this cause, Hezekiah sent emissaries to the great prophet Isaiah to seek counsel in behalf of himself and his people. Isaiah sent a message back to King Hezekiah. Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. The emissaries returned to King Hezekiah, carrying with them Isaiah's promise of deliverance and his prophecy of the death of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Yet the siege wore on. Sennacherib sent Hezekiah another letter reproaching his God and avowing their imminent destruction and the annihilation of his city and people. Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shalt thou be delivered? 
Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezef, and the children of Eden which were in Thelazar? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, of Hena and Iva? Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered. Deeply troubled for the welfare of his people, Hezekiah went to the house of the Lord to offer up his heart to God for Jerusalem's deliverance. O Lord God of Israel, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. The Lord answered Hezekiah's prayer through the prophet Isaiah, who sent a letter to Hezekiah, prophesying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria I have heard. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? Against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake. And it came to pass that night, the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand, and cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. And when Hezekiah and his people arose early in the morning, behold, the Assyrian warriors were all dead corpses. So in fulfillment of prophecy, Sennacherib returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels, his own two sons, slew him there with the sword. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib king of Assyria and from the hand of all other and guided them on every side. Yay! <laughs> I love Hezekiah. He's so remarkable. And although as we look at this story, this is certainly a climactic event in his kingship, saving Israel against an impossible foe by being righteous and having the hand of God being able to help. And for those who might question God's hand, remember, not only had Assyria conquered all of the northern kingdom, all of Israel, they conquered most of the southern kingdom, too. Right. It was just Jerusalem that was spared. Yeah, it's a very good point. Now, speaking of Jerusalem, 
something that's really exciting about this story, as it talks about the tunnel that Hezekiah built to bring water into the city, that tunnel is still here today, and it's an engineering marvel. It starts at the side of the spring and the side of the pool, and they dug from each of those sides, and they had to keep the pitch of the tunnel so that it sloped down toward the pool consistently over the course of its progression. And where the two tunnels actually meet, they're only off by a very small margin, which is just remarkable. And that's a piece of history that you can actually tour in Jerusalem today. It's amazing. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 20. At the beginning of the chapter, we learn that Hezekiah fell ill, and the Lord told him through Isaiah that he would die. After Hezekiah pleaded with the Lord, Isaiah told him that the Lord would lengthen his life by 15 years. Something pretty amazing happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 8. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. The Institute Manual provides us this clarification. Ahaz was the father of King Hezekiah. In his lifetime, he invented a special mechanism for telling time. The instrument appears to have consisted of a series of graduated lines, or steps, over which a column towered. As the earth moved, the sun would cast a shadow at a certain angle, and thus measure the passing of the hours. So, this is what we would call today a sundial a way of using the sun to cast a shadow in order to tell time. For the shadow to go back 10 degrees, or to go back at all, is a miracle. We have no more information about how this happened, but it did. This is a similar miracle to when Joshua and the Israelites were fighting the Amorites, and Joshua commanded the sun to stand thou still. We read about that in Joshua chapter 10. While Hezekiah was sick, the king of Babylon sent letters and presents to him as he had heard that he was sick. After he was healed, he invited the king of Babylon to come and visit and see all his kingdom. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not, as it mentions in verse 13. Afterward, Isaiah, greatly concerned, asks who these men were and where they came from. Hezekiah answered honestly that they were from a far country, even from Babylon. Shortly after, Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would conquer the kingdom of Judah and all of Hezekiah's possessions would be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Verse 17. And that's interesting because Babylon isn't yet the empire it will become. Right. Assyria is the beginning of what I call the bigger fish syndrome. Assyria is the first big fish that captures all these countries in the Middle East. Babylon is the bigger fish, and that is yet to come. 
right. Now keep in mind, with the defeat of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, that marks the downfall of the Assyrian Empire, a mantle that will be taken up and expanded by the Babylonians. So that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 21. With Hezekiah being so amazing, let's see how his son does as king. Starting in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned fifty and five years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. After the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Now, there we're referencing the pantheon of gods of the Canaanites. Going on in verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Now you probably get the idea, but the statement in verse 6 that Manasseh made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments, likely means that Manasseh offered one of his own children as a sacrifice to one of the false gods he worshipped, and he sought and heeded false prophets and prophecies. Right. What a winner. Mm. Well, going on to verse 10. And the Lord spake by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Hmm. Now this visual description in verse 13, that he will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, means that Jerusalem would be conquered and emptied of his people. That said... There are some, like my sister Becky, who might take this scripture out of context to use it for her own nefarious purposes. She told me that she uses this verse to remind her husband that in the scriptures, a man cleans the dishes (laughs) so that it's his responsibility. Feel free to use this out of context in that same way in your own household. 
I believe she got that from Caroline Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, (laughs) really? That's great. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 21, Manasseh died and his son Ammon became king. Ammon followed his father's example by ruling in wickedness. He was killed by his servants two years after he became king. The people then appointed Ammon's son, Josiah, as the next king. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 22. Let's start with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Yay! That's great. So in the next few verses, it tells us that Josiah arranged payment for workers to repair the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And look what they found. In verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Apparently, the scriptures had been lost or hidden during the reign of the wicked kings before Josiah. We don't really know what the book of the law means for sure. Some scholars think it's the book of Deuteronomy. Others think it may be the full Torah, the five books of Moses. Either way, it's clearly scripture, and it's clearly something that the people hadn't read in quite a while. Right. Well, let's go on in verse 10. And Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass that when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah the servant of the kings, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. Now this is why some scholars think it might be Deuteronomy in particular, because you can imagine If they're reading the cursings and blessings that Moses had laid out in Deuteronomy and realizing, oh my gosh, we're totally receiving the cursings that we earned for not following the Lord, that would be really impacting. Yeah. So when he asks them in verse 13 to inquire of the Lord for me, what he needs to find out is, are these words truly scripture from the Lord? And if so, we have to make changes. But these five men went to who? to inquire of the Lord and to find out the validity of these records. To a prophetess named Huldah, who was living in Jerusalem in the royal quarter. This seems to make her the prophet in residence of King Josiah. It seems strange to some why the men did not go to inquire of Jeremiah, a famous prophet even in his own day. Perhaps he was not around. But rather, I wonder if Jeremiah's dire warnings and prophecies of the doom to come might have made the king's men think they already knew what Jeremiah was likely to say. Perhaps they hoped that Huldah would have better news for them. But being a true prophet, she didn't. (laughs) So let's take a look in verse 15 to what she says. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, 
Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. Because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place, and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall ye say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord. When thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace." and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. Promises like this one in verse 20 can be cryptic. Perhaps that made Josiah think that the destruction of Jerusalem would be a long way off and come after a long life and a peaceful passing. Of course, it could also mean that the righteous Josiah was not long for this earth. Right. So that then brings us to 2 Kings chapter 23. Let's take a look at the impact reading the scriptures had on Josiah and his people. Starting in verse 1. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant." And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Skipping to verse 21. And the king commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah, but in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was holden to the Lord in Jerusalem. That must have been incredible. Let's take a look at verse 25. And like unto him was there no king before him, that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. That's a sad truth that we will discover in the coming verses. But Come Follow Me has a great quote from President Kimball, who suggested that the story of King Josiah, quote, is one of the finest stories in all of the scriptures, close quote. Quite high praise, as President Kimball was an avid student of the Old Testament. Yes, indeed. 
Now, in the coming verses 26 to 37, after King Josiah had ruled for 31 years, he was killed in a battle. After his death, two of his sons, Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim, ruled in wickedness and led the people again into idolatry. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 24. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, became king of Judah. Now, you may get confused at these names as you're reading, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, but if you want to, they probably would like it if you'd call them Jakim and Jakin, because they think that's cool. <laughs> Jakim's son, Jakin. I don't know, maybe, maybe they'd like that. Or it would be just as confusing. Either way, starting in verse 9, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. Skipping to verse 13. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, even ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin, or Jachin to his friends, right, to Babylon. And the king's mother, and the king's wives, and his officers, and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even seven thousand, and craftsmen and smiths a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Now, this defeat is not the eventual destruction of Jerusalem that will happen, but this defeat, this taking out of the mighty and the people of valor, this is when we have people like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're familiar with them, they have been taken out at this time and will be in Babylon when we learn about them. And just to put it in context with the Book of Mormon, again, it's amazing to me. Lehi would have been alive and in Jerusalem at this time, and yet when he prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, they already have a precedent of Babylon coming in and taking away a lot of their people. Right. And of course, the sacred things from the temple and so forth. It's clear Babylon is in charge. Well, at least it's clear to some. In verses 17 through 20, the Babylonian king installed Jehoiakim's brother, Mataniah. Now, the king of Babylon changed his name to Zedekiah of Judah as a local king to rule his people and pay tribute to the Babylonians. So to set the stage, the Babylonians have conquered Jehoiakim, and so his uncle, Mataniah, whose name gets changed to Zedekiah, is now set up, but he's like a puppet king. Yes, he's a Jewish king. He's not a righteous king, but the Babylonians have set him up. And his job is to keep charge of things and pay tribute. But let's take a look at how he did in verse 19. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. 
So this is the setting, the beginning of Zedekiah's rule. You may remember in reading the Book of Mormon that Lehi begins his prophetic mission in the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. This is the condition that Jerusalem is in. This is the danger. And everything that he preaches and Jeremiah and other prophets preach to warn the people about the complete destruction of Jerusalem is thrown off because the people know that less than a hundred years before against the Assyrians, King Hezekiah and Isaiah, that God had saved Jerusalem. So he'll do it again. But what Lehi and the other prophets are trying to say is, yeah, they were righteous back then. You guys are terrible. And the Lord will fulfill his promises of the curses that you guys have brought upon yourselves. That King Josiah reminded you of, right? Right. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 25, last chapter. In the first few verses, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon and the Babylonians again attacked Jerusalem. Smooth move, Zedekiah. Yeah, I know. Let's pick it up in verse 6. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzar Aden, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire, and all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard brake down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city, and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzar Aden, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. Okay, so this officially ties in again to the timeline. We are at approximately 586 BC. Lehi has already left and Jerusalem has been destroyed. And specifically note in verse 9, Solomon's temple has been burnt. It is destroyed. Yeah, this is the tragedy that people couldn't even imagine that God would allow his temple to be destroyed, the walls to be broken down, the palace to be destroyed. Jerusalem is no more. If only someone would have warned Zedekiah that rebelling against the king of Babylon was a bad idea. Oh, wait, <laughs> there were two people. Yes. Let's talk about a really interesting story. This is a neat story that both Jay and I really love. Yep. And it's mentioned in the Institute Manual. This comes from the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the New Testament time period. From the Institute Manual, Josephus recorded an interesting story about Zedekiah and hearkening to the prophets. Now, as to Zedekiah himself, while he heard the prophet Jeremiah speak, he believed him and agreed to everything as true, and supposed it was for his advantage. But then his friends perverted him, and dissuaded him from what the prophet had advised, and obliged him to do what they pleased. 
Ezekiel also foretold in Babylon what calamities were coming upon the people, which when he heard, he sent accounts of them unto Jerusalem. But Zedekiah did not believe their prophecies for the reason following. It happened that the two prophets agreed with one another in what they said as in all other things, that the city should be taken, and Zedekiah himself should be taken captive. But Ezekiel disagreed with him, Jeremiah, and said that Zedekiah should not see Babylon. Check Ezekiel 12.13. While Jeremiah said to him that the king of Babylon should carry him away thither in bonds. Check Jeremiah 34.3. And because they did not both say the same thing as to this circumstance, he disbelieved what they both appeared to agree in and condemned them as not speaking truth therein although all things foretold him, did come to pass according to their prophecies, as we shall show upon a fitter opportunity. Okay, so just to recap, Ezekiel, who is a prophet in Babylon, he was taken with that first group that were taken out of Jerusalem. And so he's a prophet to the exiles in the north. He gives a prophecy. Jeremiah, who is in the trenches in Jerusalem, gives a prophecy. They both agree that Jerusalem is going to be taken, that Zedekiah is going to be captive. But Ezekiel says that Zedekiah is never going to see Babylon. Whereas Jeremiah says, you know what? He actually is going to be taken to Babylon in bonds. So because of that apparent discrepancy, Zedekiah is convinced to just ignore the whole prophecy altogether. But as the Institute Manual continues... As recorded in 2 Kings 25.7, both prophets were vindicated by subsequent events. After chastising Zedekiah for his unfaithfulness and treachery, Nebuchadnezzar commanded his sons and his friends to be slain while Zedekiah and the rest of the captains looked on, after which he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him and carried him to Babylon. And these things happened to him as Jeremiah and Ezekiel had foretold to him that he should be caught and brought before the king of Babylon and should speak to him face to face and should see his eyes with his own eyes. And thus far did Jeremiah prophesy, but he was also made blind and brought to Babylon, but did not see it according to the prediction of Ezekiel. Yeah. I love that. We have got to be so careful I mean, the Lord could have laid things out very clearly, but why doesn't he? I think one of the reasons we see here is that we need to come to him. Remember the point of all of this, the commandments, the ordinances, the rituals, the revelations. Their intention is to make us holy. Moses couldn't have been more clear about that, especially in his closing remarks in Deuteronomy. So we need to change. If a prophet says something and we don't want to listen, it doesn't work with us, we find what we think is a contradiction, and so all of a sudden we want to just dismiss everything. Well, that says a lot more about us and about what we want and who we want to become. And I think that was true of Zedekiah. Uh, Hopefully that will not be true of us. That's something that we need to bear in mind for the coming years. It wouldn't surprise me at all for someone to find what they consider an apparent contradiction in the Lord's words. Be careful. Yeah, especially careful if they end up being fulfilled, which they most certainly will be. Right. So stay close to the Lord. Now, the Book of Mormon tells us that one of Zedekiah's sons named Mulek escaped the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord directed Mulek 
and others to the promised land in the Americas sometime after Lehi and his family left Jerusalem. Some of Lehi's descendants found the descendants of Mulek and joined with them in Zarahemla. If that story is unfamiliar to you, go back and check our episode on the Book of Omni in the Book of Mormon, and you'll learn all about it. Now, the temple was destroyed and ransacked. Jerusalem had fallen, and the people were carried into the land of Babylon, or some fled to Egypt. But there is hope. Unlike the Assyrians who scattered their captives, that's where we get the lost tribes of Israel, the Babylonians allowed the people of Judah to form communities in their exile. God will call prophets like Ezekiel among them, and they will write and compile their scriptures and continue to await the Lord's mercy to let them return to their homeland. They're going to learn a lot about what it means to be God's people outside of their promised land. Now, as we close, there's two articles on the history of this time period that you might find really helpful. They're both in the Institute Student Manual. One is called The Assyrian Conquest and the Lost Tribes. It's Enrichment Section D. We'll put a link to that in the description. But the other is Babylonia and the Conquest of Judah. That's Enrichment Section G. And we'll put a link to that as well. Or just check out Volume 2 of your Old Testament Institute Student Manual and read the articles. They're very readable, and they will give you a great perspective on the historical background of this time period. It's important because it affects everything. So will the children of Israel ever get to return to their promised land? Tune in next lesson and find out. Oh, yes. Teaser. But until then, keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>